by far Jerry Anderson's greatest success in the field of super marionation was Thunderbirds. Following the adventures of the Tracy family, an independently wealthy band of do-gooders led by the philanthropic father Jeff, the Thunderbirds are based out of an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, from which they operate International Rescue, a non-profit, non-politically affiliated group who perform during feats of stunning bravery whenever somebody, somewhere, is in dire straits. Embraced by all nations, International Rescue is recognised by the United Nations as being the first port of call whenever a delicate situation needs putting right. The idea for Thunderbirds came when Jerry was watching the television coverage of a mining disaster in West Germany, and he mused why the world didn't have a team of people, based all over the world, who could leap into action whenever such a disaster occurred. Unlike Anderson's other series, this kind of gentler premise was just what Jerry was looking for as he tried to transition away from kid shows and into family entertainment. Jerry's brother was stationed at an Air Force base in Arizona where he was an extra in a movie called The Thunderbirds, thus giving this project its name. The idea was that Thunderbirds would not simply be a Saturday morning or afternoon show but a primetime entertainment series aimed at the entire family. Originally conceived like all the other Anderson shows as a half-hour adventure series, Moneyman Lou Grade watched the first episode, Trapped in the Sky, and demanded that it be upgraded to an hour, allegedly stating that this wasn't a TV show, but was almost theatrical. As such, he felt he could better sell an hour-long show to American network television, and this would put them in a better position to procure a primetime slot. This change not only near doubled the budget per episode, but also resulted in the first few episodes having to be rewritten, adding lots of new subplots and character moments to them, a change that meant that this was the first Anderson series to really focus on the characters as well as the hardware. However, neither was short-changed. The characters and vehicles for Thunderbirds are some of the best ever created for television, and certainly some of the best of the Anderson shows. Jeff himself lays down the Thunderbirds craft at the beginning of the second theatrical movie, Thunderbirds 6. Now, let's have a rundown on the international rescue craft. At the moment, there are five. Thunderbird 1. Sleek, first and fast. Thunderbird 2. Giant transporter. Carries all the rescue gear to the danger zone. Thunderbird 3, designed for space rescue. Thunderbird 4, capable of withstanding the pressure of the depth. Thunderbird 5, space monitor, capable of receiving or intercepting distress calls from any part of the world. The pilots are all named after Mercury astronauts and are Scott Tracy, voiced by Shane Rimmer, Virgil, played by David Halliday in Season 1 and Jeremy Wilkin in Season 2, Alan and John, voice acted by Matt Zimmerman and Ray Barrett, and Gordon, played by David Graham. All five vehicles were expertly designed by Derek Meddings and made excellent dinky toys, even if Thunderbird 2 originally came in blue rather than green for the stupid reason that nobody bought green toys. The Tracy boys were looked after on Tracy Island by Tintin Carano, who was a lab assistant and occasionally assisted in rescue missions. She and Jeff seemed to me to have more than just a professional relationship. Crayano and Grandma Tracy were the cooks and cleaners, and Brains, again voiced by David Graham, was the Tracy's resident tech genius. 
No mention was ever made of Jeff's wife and mother to the five boys. Of course, the most popular cast member was not a Tracy at all, but the redoubtable Lady Penelope Crichton Ward and her ever-dependable chauffeur, Aloysius Parker, voiced by Sylvia Anderson and David Graham, again. Lady Penelope and Parker stole most of the episode, thanks to Penelope's subplots of her spying activities and her double act with Parker. Cruising around London in her pink Rolls Royce license plate Fab One, Lady P, always decked out in the most stylish of Carnaby Street's fashions, was originally a top fashion model and chic icon, before accepting Jeff Tracy's offer to be International Rescue's London officer, and she and Parker regularly find themselves in their own adventures. Lady P came in for some criticism when the series was rescreened in the 90s for her smoking habit and not wearing a seatbelt, but Sylvia Anderson defended the character, saying that for all the minor problems with the character's 60s origins, Lady P was a first-class role model for young girls, relying on nobody but herself and being totally self-sufficient. Her part as the secret agent pretending to be the bored aristocrat puts her in esteemed company alongside James Bond, Zorro and Batman. Parker was also an interesting character. Established as a former crook and safecracker, Parker ended up in the employ of Lady Penelope, who gave him a second chance. For this reason, Parker is fiercely loyal to Penelope. As with all Anderson shows, the design and SFX are top-notch, and Barry Gray provides an iconic and memorable theme tune. Thunderbird's opening sequence starts with a countdown, an extreme close-up on the number as the narrator says it, pulling back quickly to reveal each of the five Thunderbird vehicles. After intoning, Thunderbirds are go, the viewer is witness to a series of fast-paced clips from the upcoming episode before the main sequence kicks in. It's one of Anderson's best title sequences, and one of Barry Gray's best ever themes. Here it is. Five, four, three, two, one. Thunderbirds are go. Thunderbirds launched in September of 1965, 100 years before the show was set, and was a smash hit all over the world, although, somewhat ironically, episodes were sold as two-parters, despite the change of length as ordered by Lou Grade. This was possibly due to the success of Batman. As mentioned, Grade was so impressed by the show, he thought that the cinematic quality Anderson and his team were bringing to the series belonged on the big screen. 
As such, Thunderbird's Argo was greenlit before the series began erring, which may have been part of its downfall. Opening with a less impressive version of the TV series credit sequence, the film concerns the Zero X, the first manned mission to Mars. The Zero X suffers a malfunction, which is ruled sabotage, and International Rescue is asked to help out on the second launch, should there be another attempt to scupper the mission. As the launch approaches, International Rescue are able to unmask the saboteur as the hood, thanks to the work of Lady Penelope and Parker, and the second launch goes off without a hitch. Six weeks later, the Zero X crew are forced to return to Earth prematurely due to their own stupidity. Whilst pootling around on Mars, the silly men shoot a rock formation that turns out to be a snake rock creature who, understandably perturbed, attacks them back. On their re-entry, the lifting body fails, calling on international rescue to save the day. The failure of the movie is entirely down to failures in the script. There's a great normal-length episode of Thunderbirds here, padded out to 90 minutes with ridiculous subplots concerning Cliff Richards and the Shadows, who will be inexplicably popular, apparently, in the 2060s. The opening of the film is visually arresting, as one would expect, with the takeoff of the Zero X being a wonderful, if a tad overlong, sequence. The International Rescue team don't even make an appearance until 18 minutes into the film. Here's a clip. Well, Father, takeoff is scheduled for tomorrow morning. You'll have to make a decision soon, Dad. Even if it's no. This is a tough one. I know how you boys feel. I guess you're raring to go. But as you know, we have a strict rule here. No international rescue craft is launched unless someone is in grave danger. Right? Right. Guess so, Dad. That's the way it's always been. Guess you're right, Dad. Yeah. However, rules were made to be broken. Now, this is what we do. Scott? Yes, sir. Launch Thunderbird 1, proceed to Glenfield, and stand by there for the takeoff of Zero X. Yes, sir. Virgil? Launch Thunderbird 2 and follow Scott to Glenfield. When Zero X takes off, escort it through the atmosphere on the first part of its journey. Yes, sir. Father, can I... Yes, you can. Launch Thunderbird 3 and orbit the Earth until Zero X has established its course to Mars. Gee, thanks, Dad. What about me, Father? Well, it's unlikely that you'll be needed, but you'd better be ready in case. Yes, sir. Okay, boys. Thunderbirds are go! One of the things people mentioned about Thunderbirds was that poor Alan Tracy was off on the space shuttle all the time and never got to have any adventures himself. This film makes a point of mentioning this in the clip you just heard, and it seems the writers wanted to address it. I think they spent too much time addressing it. There's a long fantasy sequence in the middle of the movie where Alan and Penelope go on a date to the Swinging Star, a space bar where he wines and dines Lady P, whilst puppet versions of soft rock band The Shadows play newly composed songs that the producers presumably thought would be a hit. Whilst the surreal flight of fancy gives Alan something to do, it slows the movie down something fierce. The failures of this sequence were not lost on Jerry, and in Stephen Lariviere's book Supermarionation, A History of the Future, Sylvia cops to this being her idea. From a commercial standpoint, it makes sense, and a lot of movies would try to use songs to promote their films, but rarely did they take up ten minutes of pointless screen time in the middle act. This misstep notwithstanding, Anderson was well ahead of his time in the marketing aspects of his film. In addition to all the wonderful toys to be made from the vehicles and dolls, the Zero X crew was spun off into their own comic strip in the TV comic. It's 20 odd minutes in before we welcome Lady Penelope and Parker, who are as glamorous and humorous as ever. Here they are.
International Rescue, England. Lady Penelope speaking. Hi, Penny. Well, I've made my decision. We're going to oversee the Zero X launch. Thunderbirds 1, 2, and 3 are on their way. I want you to go to the States immediately and ensure that there's no sabotage attempt this time. FAB, Jeff. I'll fly over with Fab 1 right away. Now, I'll need to move around there freely on this type of assignment. Can you pull a few strings your end to see that I get the necessary parts? Will do, Penny. There's a big press conference tomorrow evening. You'll be representing a British magazine. F.A.B., Jeff. You rang, belated? Yes, Parker. Get out the Rolls Royce. I'll call the airport. We're taking off for America with Fab One immediately. Penelope is really cool here. She identifies the bad guy as Dr. Grant and then Scott unmasks him, but he gets away. Penelope and Parker then zoom after the escaping villain, giving Meddings and his crew a chance to do a pretty cool car chase that fulfills the Anderson brief of cool vehicles doing cool stuff. The villain escapes to a jetty where Fab One proceeds to turn into a boat, ten years before Q Branch would outfit James Bond with the Lotus Esprit. Penelope recognises the villain as The Hood, a regular threat on the TV show, and he escapes to a helicopter. This is a really exciting sequence, action-packed with magnificent effects and model work. Helicopter gunships strafe Fab 1 on the water as we cross-cut to Zero X taking off and Thunderbird 2 helping it on its way. Lady P still has tricks up her sleeve, and using Fab 1's onboard machine guns, Parker blasts the chopper out of the sky. Lady P then has the best most deadpan line in the film. I don't think there's much point in looking for survivors, Parker. No, lady. Lady Penelope there being as ruthless as she is lovely. Zero X achieves a successful launch second time around and the International Rescue Boys decide to take a break for the middle of the movie, which is as good a place to go to the toilet as any, because the aforementioned shooting star club scene happens here, wasting screen time on a ridiculous and pointless indulgence. After the great opening and the tense attack on Zero X, in addition to the dream sequence, we're then treated to five minutes of the Tracys and their extended family goofing around by the pool. All of this just to tell us the Zero X has landed on Mars. We then get two whole minutes of a moon buggy driving across Mars. Yes, the design and sets are gorgeous, but the kids, and this adult, are starting to get a little bit antsy. Getting to the point, finally, the Zero X is forced to flee Mars by life, Jim, but not as we know it. This film is back on track with an exciting and visually impressive set piece with the snake stone creatures opening fire on the Zero X buggy and our astronaut chums fighting back. They flee and return to Earth, but with only 20 minutes of movie left, it all goes tits up. Control, this is Zero X. Emergency. We have lost lift body two following a collision caused by a fault in our remote radio control unit. Roger, Zero X. I'm setting up another lift body immediately. That won't help us, I'm afraid. The locking gear was damaged in the collision. Check on all systems, show fuel systems go. All control systems go. Remote control radio circuits are dead. Escape unit is... Central control from Zero X. Escape unit circuits are dead. Okay, John, I get the picture. Continue to monitor their frequency. FAB. Right. Now we gotta move fast. Zero X is coming in on one wing. Due to damage, it's impossible to get another wing attached. She's unable to maintain height and will crash in approximately 30 minutes. 
The most recent check of the control systems aboard shows that they have an escape unit failure. Unless we can get the crew and passengers out before that aircraft hits the ground, they are all doomed men. Okay, Scott, you know what to do. Take brains with you. You'll need technical advice. Yes, sir. Okay, Virgil, take pod four with the air-to-air -air rescue equipment and rendezvous with Zero X. Yes, sir. Alan. Yes, sir. I want you to board the Zero X and fix that hatch. Yes, sir. Father. Yes, Gordon, you'll be needed too. Off you go. Yes, sir. Tintin, I want your help. Thunderbirds are go. International Rescue save the day, because of course they do. And again, the movie excels in its suspense, action and gorgeous model work. For the first time, Anderson achieved his dream of a fully-fledged movie, and he prepared for it by redesigning all the puppets, models and costumes for the big screen. The result is a wet dream for model and practical fans like myself, and the star of the show is undoubtedly Eric Meddings and his team of technicians, most of whom would go on not only to help Stanley Kubrick on 2001, but have long and illustrious careers with Spielberg, Lucas and on the Bond movies. Thunderbirds Argo is a quantum leap forward for Anderson and his technicians, but like Star Trek The Motion Picture 12 years later, the producers are so in love with their hardware they sometimes lose sight of the overall picture. As such, the story here isn't really good enough to carry a 90-minute movie, and it isn't different enough from the weekly TV show to justify the big-budget treatment or the cost of getting off your ass and going to the cinema. Thunderbirds Argo is still glorious entertainment though, a true Jerry Anderson adventure that is filled with action and spectacle. Tighten up the midsection and this would be a great 80 minute film, and I don't think it's a creative flop at all. Sadly, it was a commercial flop over that Christmas period, something that surprised all involved who thought they had something here that would rival Bond in mass appeal. United Artists couldn't believe what had happened, and in complete opposition to what normally happens with a flop movie, they greenlit a sequel. Thunderbird 6 was released in the summer of 1968, and made at the same time that Century 21, Anderson's production company, were working on Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons. As such, the models and puppets are again more detailed and refined, reflecting the advances made on the last Thunderbirds feature and that series as well. The plot for this one centres more on Brains, the in-show brainiac who designs and maintains the Thunderbird craft for the Tracys. He has designed a new skyplane called Skyship One for the New World Aircraft Corporation, but now Jeff wants Brains to update the Thunderbirds with a sixth vehicle. This means Brains will miss the launch of Skyship One, but Alan Tracy, Tintin and Lady Penelope will all sub for him. Jeff lets Alan leave in a Tiger Moth biplane, but forbids Tintin from travelling in with him because he's a rampant sexist. Not really, he's just worried that an older vehicle like that just wouldn't hold up. And as I've said, I believe there was more going on between Jeff Tracy and Tintin than the show ever really revealed. Tintin disobeys orders and goes with Alan anyway. The tone of Thunderbird 6 is considerably lighter than Thunderbird's Argo, with Barry Gray delivering a more whimsical score and the characters acting a little broader than usual to emphasise the laughs. Anyway, the hood is once again after the Thunderbird's designs and he and his agents steal aboard Skyship 1. For me, this is the big weakness of the sequel. The hood is essentially doing exactly the same thing he did in this movie as he did in the last one. Still, there are some gorgeous shots in this film. At one point, an aerial shot shows Thunderbirds 2 and 1 flying above the biplane, which is flying above the road on which Fab 1 is driving, complete with surrounding fields, forests and roads. Granted, there are no other cars on the road, but when you consider that everything in this sequence has to be built from scratch, it's an impressive visual effect. 
The mayhem level isn't quite up there with Captain Scarlet, but this is still a family movie in which the Hood shoots dead five pilots from Skyship One so his men can take their place. He then dumps these dead bodies from Skyship One's hangar bay into the sea. Anderson never skimped on death in his shows. Technology is light years ahead of its time, with characters possessing Apple watches and phones, although tape recorders are still real to real. The plot to this one progresses well with none of the distractions of Thunderbirds Argo, and once again it's Penelope and Parker who spot the telltale signs that all is not well. Parker and Brains are sadly largely the butt of the jokes, but they still prove their worth. The HUD's plan is to lure Thunderbirds 1 and 2 to a remote location by using key phrases from Penelope's bugged conversations. Penelope, not being a dim bulb, realises what's going on and manages to get word to Scott and Virgil and they turn the tables by going all Erwolf on the asses of the HUD's men. They blow the place to hell. I didn't think International Rescue did that kind of thing. They then fly out to the Skyship, where there is a gunfight occurring between the HUD's gangsters, Penelope, Alan and Parker. I suspect the violence levels in Captain Scarlet have rubbed off on the Thunderbirds team. Thunderbird 1 and 2 arrive to see the Skyship 1 is on a collision course with a missile site, and it's time for action! The Thunderbirds swoop in to rescue their family, and Anderson's technicians make this worth the wait. This is a great sequence, with Thunderbird 1 and 2 performing during feats of do as Brains flies to the rescue with the tiger moth that Alan flew at the beginning of the film. And the filmmakers do an exceptional job of mixing in model work with real footage of the tiger moth airplane. There have been critics of the film who felt the ending was anticlimactic and the audience clearly expected a more technological Thunderbird 6 than an old model from the Steam Age. But I think this is Anderson and his team being cute and saying that older technology can still have its place. I was a bit more disappointed that the Thunderbird film concluded with a shootout which didn't feel very Thunderbirds to me. More like, again, Captain Scarlet. Either way, I enjoyed Thunderbird 6 a lot. It's neither better nor worse than Thunderbirds Argo, with both being pretty fun, although the first one had a lot of padding as the Andersons learned how to make a feature film. The second still had moments where the production team were more interested in showing off their hardware, but they weren't as long as the first film. The tension builds nicely in its final act, and it's all executed with aplomb. As a reward, the Tiger Moth was awarded the status of Thunderbird 6. It's not a bad last hurrah for the Thunderbirds. Sadly, this wasn't a box office hit either, and with the axing of the television show six episodes into the second season, the Thunderbirds flew off our screens forever. Or so it seemed. Of all the Anderson shows, Thunderbirds was the one that caught on with subsequent generations, thanks to repeats. The series sold around the world, gathering new fans with every screening, not least when it received a network run in 1991 on BBC Two, where it became a genuine phenomenon. Kids around the country flocked to the screenings, creating a hit out of the show all over again, with incredible viewing figures of over 6 million people, as dads and their kids tuned in once again to the fantastic adventures of International Rescue. Toys flew off the shelves, and Blue Peter's most famous episode, after the one where the elephant shits on the studio floor, was the one where Anthea Turner showed the kids in the audience how to build their own Tracy Island from toilet rolls, after the toys became the must-have item for Christmas 1991. We even have a family picture from that year with my cousin Jonathan, then all of six years of age, wearing a Tracy Boy's Thunderbirds outfit. Weirdly, no remake was forthcoming. 
The Andersons sold their rights to Thunderbirds many years before, not believing there would be an interest in an old TV show, so any such endeavour was without their involvement. As such, in 2004, it was announced a live-action film version was on the way, but without Jerry Anderson overseeing or having any creative control. Alan Tracy gets a larger slice of the action in the 2004 live-action Thunderbirds film, directed by Commander Riker himself, Jonathan Frakes. Greeted with almost universal disdain, this movie, whilst not great, isn't a massive turd either. The focus is shifted from the Tracy boys to Alan Tracy alone, although he's de-aged to be a teenager and is still in high school. Tintin has also been de-aged to be a contemporary of Alan and is now played by Vanessa Hudgens. There's also a new character, Fermat, the son of Brains, and a character never actually seen in the original show. After a pretty cool title sequence utilising the original theme to great effect, the opening scene has International Rescue saving the day in a very daring fashion. After this, the movie settles down to tell its story. Once again, the Hood, played with no small amount of relish by Ben Kingsley, wants to steal the Thunderbirds and use them to commit bank robberies. The Hood has a vendetta against Jeff Tracy due to his failing to rescue him in a diamond mine collapse. This is the largest misstep in the film. Thunderbirds is about saving people. Having a plot about how Jeff failed is interesting as an episode of a series, but as the focal point of a film version, it misses the point. The second misstep is the Tracy boys themselves. Bill Paxton is suitably wooden and stiff as Jeff, but this is largely due to the horrible dialogue he's given, a mixture of action movie cliches and family soap opera schmaltz that is really terrible. The sons, apart from Alan, are given nothing to do and leave absolutely no impression at all. All of them are bland, handsome and boring and are completely forgettable. Top Gun's Anthony Edwards is better as brains in as much as he at least seems to be having a bit of fun, especially in the scene where the hood controls his body and he's forced to walk like a puppet. The stars of the show, though, are the beautiful and vibrant Sophia Miles as Lady Penelope and Ron Cook as Parker. According to a recent interview with Miles on the Jerry Anderson podcast, Lady P and Parker's dialogue was rewritten just prior to production by Richard Curtis. Curtis did this as a favour to Working Title, who had recently produced his first film, Four Weddings and a Funeral, and this dialogue polish improves the film immensely. Lady P and Parker have excellent chemistry. Penelope's lines are genuinely amusing in places and delivered wonderfully by Miles, who doesn't channel Sylvia Anderson at all, but instead imbues Penelope with her own charm. Parker has a neat line and admiring glances made in Penelope's direction, implying a little bit of a crush. I swear, the best scenes in the movie are whenever Penelope and Parker are on screen, and if working title would have had any brains, they would have done a sequel that was just about those two. Sadly, a sequel was not on the cards, as this was a box office bomb, and it's quite easy to see why. It's not really Thunderbirds. Jerry Anderson hated it, tearing up a substantial cheque from the production company rather than saying nice things about the film, especially after he wasn't even consulted on the film when it was in production. Sylvia Anderson, who was consulted, only gave the film glowing reviews, but this didn't seem to affect box office. The film isn't as bad as all that. Jonathan Frakes does a good job with it, and the effects are nice. It desperately wants to be Spy Kids rather than Thunderbirds, though, and this is where it falls down. By focusing on the kids rather than International Rescue, the producers made a kids' film rather than a family film. 
The Thunderbirds' legacy continues, however. Jerry gave his blessing to a new CG version of the show before he died, and this debuted on ITV in a primetime Saturday evening slot on the 4th of April 2015, before settling into a regular slot on CITV. Now 93 years old, David Graham returned to voice Parker, and Rosamund Pike, a runner-up for the role in the live-action version, finally got her shot voicing Lady Penelope. The show was met with critical and fan approval for being a pretty decent update of the show and has boasted an impressive guest cast from Sylvia Anderson returning to voice Penelope's aunt, Sylvia Crichton Ward, and other notable artists appearing, including Rich Hall, David Tennant, Jenna Coleman, Sanjeev Bhaskar, Reese Darby, Omid Dali, Mark Gatiss, Ruby Wax, and Amelia Clark. Anderson vet Matt Zimmerman has also appeared. Thunderbirds is now over 50 years old and shows no sign of stopping. It's the most evergreen of the Anderson properties and the most famous. Long may we continue to hear Thunderbirds are go. Hey Mike. Shaq, what what are you doing in my house? I I had a key made, but that's not important. Anyway, I just had a great idea for a trailer for that cute little network you do. The, the Fortress of Bailey Toot Podcasting Network? Yeah, that's the one. It's adorable. I love it. I mean, look at you. Like, with the network and stuff. Thanks. I, I, I think. Anyway, you know how people sometimes advertise something by, like, being extreme and suggesting that you just might die if you don't buy, like, a particular product or something? Yeah, I, I believe those people are called sadists. Sadists? That's one way you could say it. Or guy with a marketing degree kind of the same thing anyway we could record a promo where i ask you something like mike do you know who didn't listen to the fortress of bailey 2 podcasting network who gwen stacy really you know who else didn't listen to it who thomas and martha wayne the waynes and uncle ben not the rice uncle ben and the entire planet of Krypton, except those that survived. What about Bucky or Jason Todd? Ooh, that's genius. Okay, we'll say they didn't listen, and then Superboy Prime punched a wall, and then they listened, and they were brought back to life. I guess we could also say that Aunt May subscribes and unsubscribes all the time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now you're catching on. I'm not doing that, Shag. I'm not going to suggest that people will die if they don't listen to the Fortress of Bailey-Tude podcasting network, which hosts such shows as From Crisis to Crisis, Overlook Dark Knight, Views from the Long Box, It All Comes Back to Superman, and Bailey's Batman Podcast, and that they can find the network at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Are you sure? I mean, I do have like a marketing degree and stuff. I'm, I'm pretty smart. No. Can I at least be in the trailer? Yes. The Fortress of Bailey-Tude Podcasting Network. The repository of podcasts produced and hosted or co-hosted by Michael Bailey. Head on over to www.fortressofbailey2.com to download the shows directly. You can also find a master feed of all shows by searching for Fortress of Bailey-Tude Podcasting Network on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, or you can subscribe to the shows individually. The Fortress of Bailey-Tude Podcasting Network does not suggest that not listening to any of these shows will prove fatal, nor does it endorse surreptitiously making a key to a friend's house for the purposes of busting in and suggesting ideas for podcast trailers. 
Music in this trailer by Kevin McLeod. And we're back to delve into the email sack and see what you lovely people have to say. Our first email is from Jason Ritter. Hello, Jason. Hello, Andy. I'm a new listener and really enjoy the podcast. Oh, good. Thank you very much. I was wondering if you could do a commentary episode on the 90s Flash episode done with mirrors or a commentary on the Justice League Unlimited episode Flash and Substance. Hope you have a good show. Thank you, Jason Ritter. Commentaries are always an option, my friend. Um, I do plan on doing some more Flash at some point. Exactly what form that will take, I don't know. Because I do love the Flash. One of the, whenever Comixology have a sale on things, I always pick up a few old issues of the Flash. The old Barry Allen one, the Carman Fantino ones. And it's not something you think would appeal to me that much because... It is painfully predictable comic books, and they always end in exactly the same way. But there's a level of imagination to those Flash comics that I just find really charming. So uh, the Flash is always bubbling under. But like I say, exactly how he will bubble to the top, I don't know. Uh, Email from Nathaniel Wayne. Nathaniel's emailed in again. Hello, Nathaniel. Hey there, Andy. You all right, mate? It's good to have you back. Still catching up, obviously, and I've gotten to your brand new day coverage. While One More Day is pretty universally despised, I've heard much more divergent opinions on Brand New Day. I'll confess to not having read any of it. I find as I grow older, it becomes more and more difficult to get invested in a character and medium that I know is never going to properly end. Not to say my love of old webhead has or ever will diminish, but I just can't sink the effort into keeping up with the comics anymore. I'm glad you gave some acknowledgement that the loss of the marriage would have had on any fan who started reading since the two were a couple, as was the case with yours truly. It brings to mind my overall frustration with long-time fans who start to write their favourite characters and wish to bring them back to the way they remember them. Because whatever these kids who've only been reading for the last 15 years instead of the last 30 don't have any taste anyway. It's the same annoyance I had with DC's return of the iconic versions of what had become legacy characters like Batgirl, Green Lantern, Flash, etc. Never mind that the stories had legitimately moved on and new fans loved what they already had. It wasn't what the writers grew up with, so the toys have to get tossed out of the pram in the name of making it feel like the 70s again, so the writer doesn't have to remember how old he actually is. Okay, maybe I'm overstating it a little, but I just hate it as a storytelling instinct so much. It's fandom gatekeeping. Oh, you don't know the real Spider-Man. Forget what you think you like. Let me reset it all and do it right. To pull that nonsense and then fundamentally miss some of the major elements of Peter as a character on top of it is just galling. Yeah, it's a weird situation that. I mean, I can understand DC wanting to go back to the iconic versions of the characters. But for an awful lot of people who were reading the comics at that time, Barry Allen was dead. Wally West was the Flash. And then Kyle Rayner was Green Lantern. And so the vast majority of the, the audience, John Stewart was Green Lantern because of the Justice League cartoon. So to arbitrarily bring back Hal and Barry, just it did seem a little bit silly to me. But, you know. It, it's at that point, I think, that DC's given up any pretense of ever moving the characters forward and evolving them. And then New 52 seem to hammer those nails into the coffin. And then they go and pull something out of the bag, like the new Superman books, where Superman's back to being married to Lois, and they've got Jonathan, and it's, and it's great. You know, I never thought of married with children Superman version. I would love them 
Bendis, because Bendis is quite good at comedy dialogue. I would love Bendis to just do a Married with Children issue that is just a comedy issue of Clark at home dealing with Lois and John and the dogs. I, that'd be brilliant. But yeah, arbitrarily chasing, bringing back Hal and Barry was a bit weak. I do agree. Nathaniel continues. It's funny you mentioned Jackpot because I'd literally never heard of her until the news broke that Sony is developing a solo movie for the character. No, really. Only a couple of days before listening to this episode. They're going to make a Jackpot movie. I, I, I can't. There's that gif that goes around of Mal Reynolds. Insert that here. Because I got, I got nothing. I mean, what is there about Jackpot to hang a film on? I mean, apart from the two obvious things. Ooh, that was a bit sexist. Oh, well, the more things change, the more some idiots in a suit wants to split it into pieces for individual monetization, whilst another idiot, desperately to reclaim his childhood, ham-fistedly punches a reset button so that things stay the same. That's the phrase, right? <laughs> I, I, I think you may be paraphrasing a bit, <laughs> Nathaniel. <laughs> but I did like it. And then he, he follows that up with, I've almost caught up, so I'll stop flooding you with emails soon, maybe. No, don't! The moment you're the only regular one. Anyways, I just heard the Highlander episode. The movie is a cheesy pleasure of mine. One of those films that should not work. A famous Scotsman as an Egyptian with a Spanish name. A half-blind Frenchman as a master sword fighter. Modern rock music in a period setting. But somehow, it does. I did see the pilot and a few scattered episodes of the series, as well as the first two sequels to the film, but ultimately, I've come to the conclusion that there is only one Highlander movie, and then a handful of odd pretenders. The anime film, I think, might be the only way to keep this thing going and not have it hurt. It takes the basic concept and tells a new story with it, this one set in the far future with a purer focus on revenge, rather than trying to actually continue the narrative or tie things together. It's still not a great movie, but I think it's the right approach. That's not to belittle the show. I've heard from enough fans that it did pretty well for at least the majority of its run, but for me that ever so slightly off performance given by Lambert was a big part of the appeal. And Connor as a character never really quite grabbed me on that level. And whilst you can't go wrong with who wants to live forever, I'm planning a future Doctor Who performance number using that song, I do think that Bonnie Portmore worked well from what I've heard in the clip. But I'm a hardcore McKennett fan, so I'm biased though. Yeah, it's not that there's anything wrong with, with that version of Bonnie Portmore or her singing of it or anything like that. And on another episode, it probably would have been fine. But it just felt really incongruous to close out Highlander with a song that wasn't Queen. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not me dissing on Bonnie Portmore or McKinnett at all. It just felt not right for that moment. Um, it's very strange. Great listening, as always. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you, as ever, Nathaniel. Don't stop emailing in. I'm quite depressed if you don't email me. Uh, Jason Trenner emailed in, and he loved the covering of various reboots that should or shouldn't be done. I tended to agree with you as well at which ones a remake could work and which ones couldn't. Transformers have been getting reboots and such since the 90s, which the line, being able to change or grow or frankly transform with the times, also has a continuity on the various lines of it is canon in some timeline somewhere. So the franchise didn't need to have all the history dropped like Star Wars, and it counts to some version, unlike all the non-on-screen material of Star Trek. So yes, the Michael Bay films ended up in their own section of the Transformers multiverse, but they could be dropped or stopped, and the Transformers would adapt and grow into something else. Though there is something not quite a reboot or continuation or remake that has happened to various 
Japanese mecha shows from the 70s onwards. Super Robot Wall is an odd beast in many ways. For the writers of modern mecha shows, it is like when Weird Al did a parody of your song. You knew he'd arrived when that happened. Oh, you mean a parody of your song, not a parody of the Elton John song, your song. <laughs> Sorry, I misread that. Super Robot Wall. Oh, see now? Old series have gotten a new life by being in the Super Robot Wars, be it reboots or upgraded form of mech that appeared in Super Robot Wars, getting its own show. Finally, one of the mecha shows that was popular in Japan, but the plot was a mess, has been redone and rewritten for Super Robot Wars games. And the voice actors from that show think Cesar W did it better. The thing is, the mecha shows and who produced it are owned by the same company. And that makes Super Robot Wars games, which literally means the mandate it had was put the show in the games because it was popular. But we know the plot is crap, so what you do what you want with it. So I did talk about two things I love, but they were somewhat related to the topic at hand. Yes, they were. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Nathaniel. Thank you, other Jason. Always nice to hear from people, especially new listeners. Thank you, Jason Ritter, for being a new listener. Uh, as usual, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a proud member of the Two True Freaks family. Bugger on off to the Two True Freaks webpage. Click on the Amazon link, buy your shit through Amazon, and we get kickbacks. We don't actually see these kickbacks in the form of cash, which would be nice, but it doesn't happen. Demonzo has the weirdest accountants who seems to be able to make that we're not making any money. Um, next time on the Palace of Glittering Delights. Yes, I do know what's going to be next. I'm going back to the Spider-Man well. And I'm going to be covering John Romita's first year as penciler on The Amazing Spider-Man. Covering issues 39 through 50. Depending on how long I end up waffling for, that may end up being two episodes. But we'll see how it goes. Alright then, see you next time. Thanks for listening. And remember, everything's going to be okay. Ta-da! Thunderbirds! Oh! Go!